Today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is chosen... He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The Stepford Wives was a novel written in 1972, and it was made into actually two movies, one in 1975 and then a remake in 2004. In the story, the uh, husbands in Stepford, Connecticut, uh, turned their wives into robots who never crossed their wills. So a Stepford wife was a wonderfully compliant and beautiful woman. But no one would say in such a marriage that there's actually any kind of intimacy and actual relationship. In fact, in any truly personal relationship or for there to be a truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you, to confront you, to disagree with you. And that is true of God. If you remove anything from the Bible that confronts your sensibilities, or if you remove anything from the Bible that crosses your will, or if you believe only the certain parts that make sense to you and reject the rest, 
then you have a God who will never contradict you. You'll have a Stepford God. You'll have a God that is in your own making. And that's a God that can never contradict you. And that's a God that you really have no relationship with because you've made a God in your own making. Real confrontation is not the enemy of personal relationship. It's actually the precondition for it. In Acts chapter nine, Jesus confronts and contradicts Paul, Saul. His name would become Paul. Contradicts Saul. And that would be the beginning of a beautiful relationship between Saul and God, one that would have a profound impact on the world, as a majority of his writings are in the New Testament. Last week in Acts 8, we looked at the gospel of Jesus Christ confronting the Ethiopian eunuch, who was the epitome of an outsider. Now in Acts 9, we see Jesus confront Paul, who's the epitome of an insider. Steeped in the tradition of Judaism, he was the religious poster child of the day. So it begs the question, what is revealed when Jesus confronts a religious person? What is revealed when Jesus confronts a religious person? First, it reveals a spiritual blindness. In verses one and two, we see that Saul is breathing out threats and murder against the followers of Christ. In fact, he asked the high priest in Jerusalem for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he can go find Christians in Damascus, handcuff them, arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem to put them on trial. You say, why? Why was Saul doing that? Well, to understand why he was doing this, you need to understand who he was. And after he came to Christ, Later, in his letter to the Philippians, he described who he was before he came to know Christ. Listen in Philippians chapter three, verses five to six. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Saul had an impeccable pedigree. He was schooled in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. He knew God's law inside and out, and he followed God's ceremonial law to the T. And he studied under the renowned religious educator of the day. His name was Gamaliel. Paul Saul had received a Harvard education in religion, specifically in Judaism. So you say, then why in the world was he hunting down Christians to throw them in prison? Because he was convinced that they were wrong and that they were spreading a false religion. You see, Saul was a monotheistic Jew, which simply means he believed there was one God. And here are these Christians running around 
claiming that Jesus was God. So Paul, Saul, I'm gonna get this right. We're gonna stick to Saul this morning. So Saul sees Christianity, these followers of Christ, claiming two gods, Jehovah and Christ. And in Saul's mind, Christianity was therefore incompatible with Judaism. So they were wrong in his mind. And not only wrong, but he thought they were being deceptive. Thought they were spreading lies about Jesus rising from the dead. So here you have a man who was schooled in religion, who thought he was right, and they were wrong. Now, you say, what's wrong with being right? Understand in this situation, he thought he was right. But let's just, let's just even back it up to what's wrong with being right? Well, there's nothing wrong with being right. The problem is in the need to be right or needing to be acknowledged as being right. That's where the problem is. The need to be right comes from a deep sense of pride. And pride is simply finding your worth as a human being in being right, or in people acknowledging that you're right and that you're great. Now you say, how do I know if I have a need to be right? I mean, how do I discern that? How do I discern if I am one of those that I have a need to be right? It's a pretty simple question, here it is. What do you do when people don't acknowledge that you are right? The Christians were not acknowledging that Saul was right, and it threatened him, and it made him really angry, and so he began to threaten them. In fact, there's a number of accounts of Saul's conversion in the book of Acts, but in Acts 26, 11, describes his anger this way. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Raging fury. What does that mean? It means to be insanely angry, insanely angry. Some of the most angry people are the most religious people. In fact, when you look in Jesus' day in the Gospels, the most religious people of the day were the Pharisees. Saul was one of them. They became angry when people were leaving them and following Jesus. I love how C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist converted to Christ, I love how he says it. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, Pride is gone. Think about the parable of the prodigal son, right? The older brother 
who got really angry because he had what he thought had religiously followed all the rules of the house and didn't get what he wanted. But who got what he wanted? The younger brother who hadn't followed all the rules. So the older brother was filled with anger. Here's the problem with pride, the need to be right, the need for people to acknowledge you as right and great. Here's the problem, you can't see it. You can't see it. It's like being at dinner with a piece of food stuck in your teeth that you don't know and you can't see, but everybody else can. That's how pride works. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says it this way, a proud man is always looking down on things and people and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So if you can't see it, then how do you become aware of it? What is revealed when Jesus Christ confronts religious people? First, a spiritual blindness, but second, a new sight. A new sight. The way that you become aware of your pride is by gaining a new ability to see. A new ability to see. Saul was blind to his pride and therefore unable to see Christ for who he was. So Jesus confronted him in a very dramatic way. Verse three, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him Verse four, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse five, Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so that this conversion doesn't get attributed to subjective experience, like a hallucination of sorts, we have verse seven. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, Hearing the voice but seeing no one, there were eyewitnesses of this conversion, of this dramatic confrontation between Jesus and Saul. And on top of that, so that this couldn't be explained away by Saul or even explained away by the church, Jesus involved the whole church in Saul's conversion. He spoke to one of his followers in Damascus. His name was Ananias. And in a vision, he told Ananias, hey, you're gonna go lay your hands on Saul, pray for him so he can regain his sight, which scared Ananias to death, literally, of what Saul could do to him. And then Jesus gives a vision to Saul of this man, Ananias, coming to lay his hands on him and pray for him so he would regain his sight. Confirmation after confirmation that Jesus had confronted Saul had blinded him for three days, and had restored his sight. But the physical blindness, that was only a parable of the much deeper blindness in Saul, the much more dangerous blindness, and that is the spiritual blindness that we've talked about. Saul was healed of two forms of blindness, certainly the physical blindness that was temporary, but he was healed of his spiritual blindness. He was given new sight. We see that in verse 17. Ananias said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent 
me so that you may regain your sight. There's the physical blindness being healed, but here it is, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Saul would see Jesus Christ for who he was for the first time. Saul, by being filled with the Holy Spirit, would be given a new set of eyes to see Christ. This was so significant that Paul writes about this new sight that he received in his letters, one being 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul, at that point, is using creation language. That in the beginning, God created light out of darkness. He says it's that same power that opened his eyes to see Jesus Christ. One day, Paul saw Jesus Christ as a moral man. I was gonna say a good teacher. He didn't even think he was really a good teacher whose dead body had been stolen out of the grave by his disciples. A day later, he saw the glory of the risen Christ, changed the way he would see Jesus forever. The core of conversion is not a new set of beliefs although it includes that. The core of conversion is a new set of eyes by which you see the beauty and the glory of the risen Christ. Not a historical Jesus that was a good man that died and still in a grave somewhere or, or whose body got stolen out of the grave. No, the risen Christ, the beautiful, risen, glorious Christ. Let me give you an illustration of this. I'm about to tell you something that's gonna forever change the way you look at the side of a FedEx truck. When you look at the side of a FedEx truck and you see the FedEx logo, what do you see? You see Fed, F-E-D in purple letters. You see X, E-X in orange letters. Next time you see one, and don't look on your phones right now, look at the white space between the E and the X, and you'll see an arrow pointing forward. Since my FedEx conversion months ago, when I look at the logo now, all I see is the white arrow pointing forward. I can't not see it. Somebody shared that with me, and it has changed the way that I look at that logo. So it is with conversion. From seeing Jesus as a man who lived on this earth and lived a good life and was a good teacher, but who died, 
to seeing the present, risen, living Jesus Christ on the throne of God in an unseen realm who is coming back one day to tear the veil between the unseen and the seen so that you can see him face to face. That's conversion. Now you say, what's this have to do with pride? What's this have to do with pride? If you see Jesus as just some historical figure, which you can't deny that. Can't deny that he was a historical figure. Lived a good life, taught good stuff, showed us how to live, gave the supreme example of what it means to be sacrificial by actually dying. If that's the way you view Jesus, then your eyes are gonna be on self. Because either one of two things is happening in your life. You are either living up to the standard of the historical Jesus and how he lived as an example, and if so, then you're filled with arrogant pride, or you're not living up to the standard of the historical Jesus and how he lived and gave you an example, and then you're filled with fearful pride. But your eyes are on yourself. When you're given a new set of eyes to see the risen glorious Christ at the right hand of God, the one who has conquered your sin, has conquered death as your savior, is the recreator who's making all things new in the world. When you see a vision of the glorious risen Christ, then your eyes are off yourself. And your eyes are on him. Gospel humility, which is the opposite of pride, is not thinking more of yourself. That's arrogant pride. It's not thinking less of yourself. That's fearful pride. It's thinking about yourself less. I love how Tim Keller puts it in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, gospel humility is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. And that gospel humility only comes when your eyes have been opened to who Jesus is. Today, present, living, risen, glorious, beautiful Jesus. What is revealed when Christ confronts religious and prideful people? A spiritual blindness, a new sight, and finally, a new purpose, a new purpose. This is a remarkable conversion. Understand that God takes the man who had been doing most to harm the church and turns him into the man who was doing most to help the church. He took a man who was zealous and passionate about persecuting the church and turned him into a man who was zealous and passionate about helping the church. Saul had a whole new purpose to his life. Verses 15 and 16. 
But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God called Saul to be an instrument. The word there means a vessel to carry his name before the world. And the means by which Saul would carry Jesus' name before the world was through suffering. God says, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. So so Saul understood this call from God, that he was gonna be a vessel to carry Jesus' name before the world and that he was gonna carry his name before the world through suffering. Listen to how he describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter four, verses seven through 10. But we have this treasure That means the glory of the risen Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The word in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek there, the word for jar is the same word for instrument in verse 15 of Acts chapter nine. Jars of clay, instrument of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You don't carry Jesus' name before others through your success and your put-togetherness. You carry Jesus' name before others through your failure and your unput-togetherness, your brokenness. The treasure, the glory of the risen Christ does not dwell in a glass of fine crystal. Dwells in a styrofoam cup. Philip Yancey offered a really powerful picture of this many, many years ago when he described his friend Carolyn Martin. He described Carolyn as bright, talented, very funny, but she had cerebral palsy. The peculiar tragedy of her condition is that the outward signs of the condition, which were drooling, floppy arm movements, inarticulate speech, a bobbing head, caused people to wonder if she was mentally handicapped. Actually, her mind was the one thing that worked perfectly. It was her lack of muscular control that was the problem. Everyone on campus knew Carolyn as the disabled person. She would sit in her wheelchair, hunched over, typing away on what was called a cannon communicator. They wouldn't talk to her because they couldn't understand her jumbled speech 
but Carolyn persevered, stretched out a two-year associate degree into seven years, and then she went to a Lutheran college to study the Bible. And while she was there, about two years in, they asked her to give the address in chapel to the students, to which she agreed. So she began writing out her talk to the students. And she asked her friend Josie, who could speak articulately and loudly and clearly, if she would read her message. And so the day came for the chapel service. Her friend is standing at the platform, and Carolyn is to the left side of it in her wheelchair, hunched over. At times, her arms jerked uncontrollably. Her head rolled to one side so much that it was almost laying on her shoulder. Stream of saliva running down her blouse. And Josie delivered this message that was centered on the text, but we have this treasure. In jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And as her message was read, and she was seated in that wheelchair, and those students looked at her, maybe for the first time, they saw past the body in a wheelchair, and they saw the glorious, beautiful, risen Jesus Christ. Treasure in jars of clay. Saul went from a man who was successful put together, prideful, to a man who couldn't see, who was weak, who was in shock. You know, you read verse nine, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And sometimes people read that and go, wow, he was already fasting. He wasn't fasting. He was in shock. He couldn't see. He had no appetite. He was a mess. He was converted through suffering. And his ministry would continue through suffering. Now, some of you may say, I wish I had a traumatic conversion experience like that. Let me tell you that every conversion is traumatic. You say, why? Jesus Christ is a gift. How can a gift be traumatic? Imagine one Christmas morning, you open a gift from a friend, and it's a dieting book. You'd have to swallow hard to receive that gift with gratitude. Or, or you, one Christmas morning, another gift comes from a friend and you open it up and it says, uh, the title is Overcoming Selfishness. To receive both of those gifts with gratitude, you have to admit that you're obnoxious and overweight. And that's traumatic. 
to receive the gift of Jesus Christ, you have to admit your weakness. You have to admit your flaws. You have to admit your unput-togetherness. That's why every conversion is traumatic. Traumatic deep at the heart level. And that's why every conversion involves suffering. It is, it is a form of suffering to admit that you're weak, flawed, and not capable. And that suffering continues through ministry. You carry Jesus' name. You, listen, you don't come to Christ a mess and say, I get it, and then go into Christian living where you start carrying Jesus' name in a, look how successful and put together I am. That's not how it works. You come to Christ a mess, and yes, there's sanctification, and he, and he, he starts to change you, but you continue in that suffering carrying the name of Jesus as an unput-together person. Years ago, in an article in Christianity Today, Al Shu shared his experience of getting laser eye surgery to correct his vision. Well, the, the surgery didn't quite take, wasn't perfect. So he went from like something like 2400 to 2040, which means it helped a lot, but things were still fuzzy. Shortly after the surgery, he's at an InterVarsity Asian American staff conference. And during corporate worship, he's, they're singing the song and he's looking on the far wall and he's squinting because he can't quite see the, the words and make them out. And so during this song, he closed his eyes and he just started praying to God for direction in the ministry and various things. And, and it, it actually, he got emotional and he started to tear up. And when he finally raised his head, opened his eyes against the thing, he, he looked up and he could see the lyrics perfectly, clearly. He didn't have to squint. And he thought, did, did God just heal me? Bring me from 2040 to 2020? And then he, you know, he blinked his eyes a few time and, times and he realized, wow, it's getting fuzzy and clear, fuzzy and clear. And he realized that the, the water on his eyeballs from the tears functioned like a contact lens. His vision was clearer because of the tears. And then he said this, I suspect that I will never see as clearly as I do when I have tears in my eyes. Your tears bring the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ into clearer focus for you and for those around you. Taking away your spiritual blindness, giving you sight and giving you a new purpose to carry the name of Jesus before others. Let's pray. Father, we confess our pride. We confess its ugliness. We confess how it fractures marriages, fractures relationships, fractures friend groups, 
and yet we confess that we can't diagnose it ourselves. We can't see it. Father, would you send your spirit? Would you fill us with your spirit? That our eyes would be opened to Jesus Christ, to the glorious, present, risen Jesus Christ. That you would reveal our spiritual blindness, give us new sight, that we could see Christ. And Father, with that new vision, would you give us new purpose to carry the name of Jesus before a watching world and that we would not carry Jesus before others with our success and our pedigree and our put-togetherness, but that we would carry Jesus before others with our weakness and our brokenness so that they would see Jesus and not us. Father, as we close in worship now, open our eyes, give us new sight, remind us of our purpose, that we may carry Jesus before others. In his name we pray, amen.